in that, in that particular not, position. Yeah, or not. Sure. Maybe not. Sure. It's warm. <laughs> it's warm and cozy. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. I'll say it. I would not be able to do that. But then I'm not, I'm not a cuddler at all. No, just, that's just no. not my thing. Physical touch. I don't. Are you, are you like a, a, like a verbal affirmation kind of guy? Oh, very much. Yes. I'm, I'm like a pose. An acts of service. It's very convenient. And, uh, yeah. The thing is, my wife is not. Acts of service? So, no. She is, she is physical touch, which is nice for me. But, uh, and then. You want to sit on the couch again? She's quality time, which I am so not. Really? Yes. Oh gosh, that's that's like my. Like, I'm so like, not. Like, like, yes. Physical touch and quality time are like one and I'm, two. I'm, I'm just so not quality time at all, and uh, and she so is. Really? Yes, and I just like. It's hard for me to comprehend that. Like honestly. we want to sit. She wants me to sit and watch a television program with her. Like and do nothing. that's time together, and I'm yeah. just like, no, it's not time together. It's not time together at all. You're not even. See, I don't, and it's hard for me to understand you right now because like I'm that type. Of person like when me and my friend hang out yeah do nothing like we'll just watch netflix or something like and that's like that's meaningful you know it's hard for me to comprehend that i don't understand it to be honest i'm so like i'm i'll do it because i enjoy the television program but like i don't understand why i don't understand why that's that's why that is my wife's company time together you know what i mean like i guess there's times where like i don't want to watch the tv program together like let's go do something let's Get a, you know, it's well, whatever. Yeah, and she's like, you can make the case that, like, you sit in the room with everyone playing Xbox. Oh, that doesn't work, no. Oh, no, it doesn't? No, no, I wish it would. That'd be great. So if I can do that and ignore her while she's in the room and still she's feeling loved by me, no, that's not going to happen. It would be great. Hey, babe, I'm going to play Shadow of War. And you just sit there, and this is going to be us spending time together. I know. We got We do. I mean, I do that with my kids. We'll play video games together. That's how we hang out. Like, we, you know, they, not Shadow of War necessarily, but Halo or you know, uh, you know, some game we're actually playing at the same time. Uh, for a while, we had to ban Minecraft because, like, oh my gosh, it was like because my older sons would become evil and start like blowing up other people's creations. And it was just, it was so like, stop, I hate you. you know? Anyway. All right, let's, uh, let's get rolling. Let's get rolling. Yeah, we're going to have fun with that one today. Uh, all right. How is everyone this morning? Wonderful. Was that it? What language was that? Was that tongues? Uh, is there an interpretation? Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering. Anyway. Evansvillies for doing well. Yeah, it's called Redneck. <laughs> you guys are a little too close. We're to not gonna. We're not gonna go there because I know too many people from Evansville. Okay, so, me too. Um, you live there. It's not. It's, it's scary. So, all right. We're gonna we're gonna jump back into the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Isn't this exciting? I love the Sermon on the Mount, and today we're gonna try and tackle at least three beatitudes. Okay, we're gonna do our best. 
gonna do our best. I know that's not much, but this this thing is so densely packed. So let's pray, and then we'll and then we'll move forward. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the sun shining, Lord. We love it, and we're thankful for it, and we just. Welcome the end of the winter in Jesus' name by faith. And now we say, Lord, come and bring the warmer temperatures. Um, But Lord, I do pray right now that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears and soften our hearts, that we would hear from you, Holy Spirit, that you would stir, that you would speak, that you would shake us, that you would change us. I want to come face to face with this radical unexpected prophetic person who is the second person of the Trinity, who's always, always surprising me, who's always, always convicting me, who's always, always encouraging me, who's always, always showing me that I have a greater destiny than I thought that I did. Because my destiny is with you. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to deepen our understanding of who you are. To really, really help us understand it. Pray that lies would evaporate in the presence of the truth. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. So last week we talked about the Sermon on the Mount being an interpretive key that Jesus was giving the Jewish people at the time to look back at the Old Testament and and the way that they had seen God in the Old Testament before and to change their underlying presuppositions of who God is and how God operates and what a kingdom ruled by God would look like. I've been spending a lot of time in this last week listening to a, one particular uh, uh, theologian, somebody that I've been waiting to dig into, and I felt like this was the right time. His name is N.T. Wright. Anybody heard of him before? Um, <laughs> he is one of the most important theologians of our time, no question, hands down. And he has a heck of a lot to say about who Jesus is and who Jesus was in the first century and the mission of Jesus. Um, And as I've been listening to what he has to say about the mission of Jesus, I realized that I missed a facet of what Jesus was doing. At least I didn't give it enough emphasis last week and maybe not enough emphasis as, as I've read the Sermon on the Mount in the past. And that is that Jesus was stepping into a a group of people who had a prophetic eschatological expectation um, that, that Israel was being restored to its original purpose from which its own... Uh, its original purpose that had been begun in Abraham and, and came to full flower all the way in through David and Solomon and some of the, you know, that, but then was lost or broken or put on pause because of the idolatry of Israel. But that that original 
purpose of Israel was to restore humanity to who it was created to be. Kind of the, the you know, in the, in the, we always need to be thinking of theology in, uh, on a timeline because theology is, or at least the, the, the plan of salvation is a story, it's a timeline. And so we need to be thinking of it in, in, that, in that way of historical events and movements and things that have taken place throughout the history of mankind that have been orchestrated by God in response to the foolishness of humankind, okay, but that are pointing to an end. Okay, so I want, I want to ask you, let's get everybody involved here. What's the first thing that God, that, that happened in the timeline, in the history of God's purpose in, in humanity? Somebody go. This isn't difficult. Yes, thank you, creation. That is number one. Number one is creation. Without creation, the rest of this doesn't happen. So we have this beautiful thing called creation where God, for reasons we don't entirely understand, but that we're really grateful for, created something other than himself. Okay? We need to remember that in eternity past, we had you you have this eternity eternity long dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thoroughly in love with each other, thoroughly delighted with one another, and in need of nothing. There was nothing missing in the heart of God. He was not like, you know, I'm kind of bored now. You know, son, I'm bored of you. No, that's not what was going on. That, that is not who God is. And God was thoroughly overjoyed in the fellowship of the Trinity, had no need of anything or anyone. But out of the overflow of joy God had in himself came this act which was unprecedented in the history of God, where something other than God came into the universe. Think about it for a minute. Something, all you have had, all that has existed, eternity past, and it's impossible for us to think about, okay, time didn't actually exist until God created it. So <laughs> explain how you have something before time. And then, that, you know, that's, that's another nosebleed kind of moment. Like, ah, 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 Okay, so. Precisely. By, by naming it eternity. It's time is, you know, eternity isn't what you think it is. It's, it's, a, it's kind of like a big ball of wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. <laughs> I love you. It, I was quoting Doctor Who. It was that was that was for the Whovians in the room. <laughs> What? Yes. <laughs> it's just you and I. But I love you. I thought Amber liked Doctor Who. What? Amber liked Doctor Who. Anyway. Okay. So. God created something other than Himself, and it was called the universe. He populated the universe with it, and the the foundation of the universe and the purpose of the universe. 
was born out of the relationship God had with himself. We need to understand that the universe and everything in it, including all, all of the angels, etc., was created by God for God. It was like, hey, let's do something together, Son and Holy Spirit. They began this project together that was in honor of one another and based upon this was the universe, including you, all of the universe is an expression of God expressing his own love for God. Now, if this helps, it's father giving the, this gift to, to the son and son giving this gift to the father and father giving this gift to the spirit and the spirit giving the gift to the father and the spirit giving the gift to the son and the son giving the gift to the Holy Spirit. So it's this kind of this, this thing. It's this mutual honor of one another, the mutual delight in one another that overflows in this explosion of creative, creative activity that, that we call the universe. Okay. And within the universe, he creates life. It isn't just the solid thing that he creates. He starts with light, which is one of the reasons we know that this is God expressing himself because what is God? God is light. Okay. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Okay. So, so we, we get this. God is reflecting his own nature in into this onto the screen called creation. Okay. Are you all with me right now? Is everybody awake? Okay. I, Cause I know these are some, these are some heavy thoughts, but I, you, we need to have the context fixed in our mind because if we don't understand the reason why everything is here, then we don't understand the reason why everything is here. Yes. So the church has been asking that question for 2000 years. Okay. And, and, and so you're in good company actually, but here's the, the, the best answer I can come up with is that at the highest order of creation, which means, by the way, the creations which were the most like himself. He bestowed upon the, that creation the same freedom that he himself has. Okay? Authority over itself. Okay, so both angels and humans have free will. We have self-determination. Okay, we get to decide who we are. Now, the reason that he did that was because he wanted to create something within his creation that could most fully reflect him, that could bear his image. And nothing that isn't free can bear the image of a free God. What he wanted to have happen was he wanted to create something in the universe that would and that could and would recognize the lovability of God and love him for its creation 
and for the fact that it is free. So that without any coercion, because our God is not coercive, that means God doesn't put your arm behind your back and say, love me or else. That's not how God works. Okay? Which you, some of you need to think about that when you start thinking about what happens to people when they die. We'll get there another time. Okay? Hell is not a threat that God is holding over the human race. Hell is the hell is the result of a choice other than God. It's the eventual result of choosing anything that is not the source of everlasting life. So think about that for a minute. Okay? God took a loving risk in creating free beings, and that was they don't have to choose him. Did he perfectly know what they were going to choose? Yeah, I think he did. But that doesn't change the premise, and it doesn't change God's inability to have both a free a free agent in the universe and someone and someone that is not destined to turn away from him and be evil. So do you think by him like um, possibly, you know, like him creating Satan, um, knowing what he would do, like um, giving us that choice, you know, because it was for him. So like, if, you know how like everyone's like, well, if it's always good, you know, you really don't know. Like with true suffering, you know, you learn more about God, I believe. Right. Like, I'm, that's me. <laughs> but that's how I feel. You're correct. Yeah. So um, I feel like, um, this is just my thoughts, but I feel like um, since we've always had that choice in the beginning, like even though he knew that, with what you're t- talking about, he gave that risk, you know, just in, with, with his love and who he is, his character, like, um, so that, like, like the earth, you know, like the temptations and stuff, that would be our choice. We always get a choice. Like, mm-hmm. this is our tree, you know? Yeah. Like, we get to choose. Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, knowing that, that, that that's what we want with God, that we can choose. You know how he's not like homeless, you know? Like, exactly. we have a choice. And yeah, it sucks, you know, when there's bad things that happen. But, like, have no fear. He's overcome the world. And with him and choosing him, we win. So that's my And this isn't the end of the story. Yeah. There is an end of the story. And the end of the story makes all of God's decisions prior to the end of the story make sense. But you have to know the end of the story is coming. That's why God told us the whole story. Okay. So creation, included in that is the creation of angels, the creation of humans, the creation of animals, the creation, etc. Okay. But this this picture that Dr. Wright has been talking about is that the earth that creation existed as a place where God and his and his living created beings could be together where, and that heaven and earth and the spiritual and the non-spiritual quote unquote were never supposed to be separate from one another. And that all of the universe is this place for the image bearers to reflect the image of God into the universe. Both 
reflecting the image of God into the universe and also reflecting the praise of the universe back to God. That we were between porch and altar, so to speak, from the beginning. One of the things he says is that when when you built a pagan temple, you would build the edifice, you would build everything else. And the final thing you would put in that temple would be the image of the God. So God created the garden, he created the universe, he created the edifice, he created everything else, and then he put his own image in the middle. And here we stand. That the true definition of sin is not something off of some list of moral do's and don'ts. That the true definition of sin is when we misalign our image bearerness because we were created to do what bear the image of God okay that's what we were created to do that means that we are living image bearers we're like slanted mirrors okay that can reflect something above us back into the world in a way that the world can see it even though the thing above might be concealed Okay, but what happens when that mirror purposefully aligns itself to it to bear some other image other than the one it was meant to bear? That's what sin is. And that's how sin works. And that's what men did. Which is why Satan's first words to the enemy were, I mean, Satan's first words to, to Eve... <laughs> That's not how I feel about women, okay? Just... <laughs> yeah, but Freud said I wanted to have sex with my mother, too. So um, I, I'm not... I'm just... Do you know anything about Freud? Yeah, don't... Um, the reason you don't like your dad is because you subconsciously want to have sex with your mother. That's, that's, Freud said that. That's called an Oedipal complex. Anyway, which I'm like, no, actually, I don't. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, Freud. He also did a lot of cocaine. But anyway, um, he actually did. He did a whole lot of cocaine. Um, <laughs> what about, he, he sings the joys of cocaine, like, um, several occasions he's it enlivens the, the you know yeah anyway and all of psychiatry is based on this okay so anyway um where were we satan. you got me off on freud satan. so satan speaking to eve what does <laughs> satan say to her what does satan say to her he does not immediately like, tell her, you know, you should do this. He begins by degrading her understanding of who God is. Did God really say? He begins by trying to confuse her view of the God with whom she has a beautiful relationship at this moment. He begins by trying to spin 
the things that God's saying. And he says to her, God's got an ulterior motive. God doesn't really love you. I know he says that he does. I know that everything around you shows him that he shows you that he does, but he doesn't really. And maybe you should be reaching, you should be imaging something else into the world and not that. He clouds the image of the mirror and so it can't, and so her humanity begins to degrade immediately because she no longer has a clear understanding of who God is. And so she makes a choice. The choice that we all make, which is I can bear the image of God or I can attempt to be God. That's the choice we make. I can bear the image of God or I can attempt to be God. Those, that's, every sin you've ever committed is that choice right there. And she reaches for the fruit and she takes it. And so begins the fall of man, which is the critical and generational misalignment of our image-bearingness. And the creation of a culture where bearing the image of God is spurned and nearly impossible. We call that culture creation original sin. I have a lot to say about original sin, but we'll figure it out another time. I don't agree with most of what church fathers would say about original sin. I don't think it's biblical at all, but let's, we'll just move forward. <laughs> Are you subject to death because of the sin of Adam? Yes, but do you carry the guilt of Adam? No. And original sin would say you do. That coming into the world, you carry guilt for the sin of Adam because you are a child of Adam. And that's just, I don't agree with that at all, but that's okay. So, we have the fall which eventually leads to the flood. You're going to see this over and over again. This repetitive thing where move, counter move, move, counter move. God makes a move to save his, to save creation for the purpose for which he created it, which is what we want, by the way. We want to exist the way that God created us. By the way, God created you to be free. God created you to be self-determinate. God didn't create you to be some mindless robot servant. And that's what, this, that's what our culture would tell you, that what God really wants you to do is not think for yourself, not be creative, not, not explore, not understand, that God wants you to close your mind, that God wants you to forget, that God wants you to just say, yes, I'll just do whatever you want me to do. That is the opposite of what God wants you to do. That's what the culture wants you to do. The culture wants you to shut up and do exactly what we tell you to do. Mostly because the people that have created our culture have made a whole lot of money off people who shut up and do what the culture is telling them to do. Are you with me? Let's back up. <laughs> That's another rant I could go running down, but I'm not going to do that. Okay? We're going to back up just a minute. 
Adam and Eve sin, and God makes a promise. This is not the end of the world. I'm going to change things. I'm going to get give you back what you've lost. That's coming. It's coming. God makes a promise to Adam and Eve at the time. God makes a promise. What the serpent has wrought, I'm going to undo. Okay, well, Satan took God seriously, even if Adam and Eve didn't. Although we, it seems like Eve believes that her firstborn son is going to be the one God promised. God's given me a man. That's what she says when he's born. She's like, here he is, Cain. Cain was not the one that God promised. But anyway. okay. And human culture continues to move further and further away from its intended purpose. As Cain kills his brother and moves away from Eden and sets up a city. The first human city. The place that all other human cities since have been based upon. Think about this. The origin of human city is the murder of the brother. Okay, that's the origin of the human city. Well, okay, let's let's. I'm getting somewhere in a minute. I just, you just wait. About, like Remus and Romulus. The, the origin of the yeah, human the city is the is the murder of my brother. And human cities and human civilization has grown ever since by killing someone else, stealing who they are and what they have, and making it mine. That's the history of human civilization. Think about it. Okay? That's what this is who we are. This is our culture. This is our race. We are murderers and thieves, and that's what we do. And we we, we kill people, we steal what they have and who they are, we make it our own, and then we call ourselves great in the eyes of history. Hello, thank you, I'm so awesome. <laughs> exactly. Just think about it. And that's going to be important later on. Okay, so. <laughs> let's continue to move forward. All right. <laughs> humanity comes to such a point where the earth gets completely unlivable and God says I have to wipe the slate clean now the Nephilim may have had something to do with all of that all that, but I'm just going to move on beyond it and then here we go the flood happens God starts over with Noah guess what happens immediately after human civilization gets a brother gets sent out, cast out by his father for dubious reasons while he was drunk. And the, the uh, recycling continues. Brother cast out, city established. Here we go. Oh, that's next. We're just going to skip beyond that, though. We're going to move forward a few hundred years, and God says... It's time to begin that salvation plan that I promised so long ago. Although, of course, God has been thinking about it the whole way. That's why God kept Shem and was talking with Shem and was dealing with Shem and, and, and all of the children 
under Shem. We're learning from Noah what it meant to be people who loved God and the things of God. And this, you know, continued on until the great, 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 great grandson of Shem, whose name is Abram, who's living in Ur. God comes to him and says, get out of here. I'm going to start everything over with you. What is God doing? God is saying, I'm going to create a people through which the rest of the world. What has God promised Abraham? Abraham, look at the stars. So shall your descendants be. And then he makes him this promise. And through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What was God doing? God was saying, I'm going to take this one man and his family, and I'm going to cultivate an anti-human culture. An anti-culture culture. I don't know how to, it's not anti-human. It's very pro-human, but it's anti-the culture humans have created. Counterculture, I just don't like that word because it's too freighted. But anyway, counterculture, fine, we'll use it for now. (laughs) I'm going to create a counterculture that has within it the revelation of who I really am that will eventually culminate in the revolution that will change the world and will restore humanity to its original purpose. Okay, And Abraham and his kids thoroughly fail at the task that God set for them. But it doesn't matter. Paul says, but does that mean that God was a liar? Nope, let God be true and every man a liar. God still knows what he's doing because several thousand years later, Jesus of Nazareth is born. Fully God, fully man, the son of Abraham, Abraham Okay, that, and the culmination of and the restoration of both the purpose for Israel and the purpose for mankind, which happens in his cross. And through both the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have a new kingdom established in the earth where where Jesus is working by his Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women to to bring us back to being the image bearers we were always created to be. When we get to the end of this story, we will have a fully restored humanity ruled over by the God-man, the truest, most deep image bearer, who will have restored earth to a pre-fall level of beauty and glory. And then God will be brought back to dwell on the earth even as he did in the days of the Garden of Eden and everything that had happened because of the fall will have been undone. Okay? Now, resuming back to the middle of the story, I want to say one thing really quick, though. The human city that was born of murder, all of the things that were born of Fort Wayne, all the things that were born, you see, God blesses the creations of the human mind because he gave us a creative ability on purpose. That God came along and said, now I'm not going to create by myself anymore. Now we'll create together. And that cooperation is going to continue forever. 
that what God wants to do is purify and renew our imaginations so that we are building out of the image of God that we are reflecting. And we're building into the world things that we that are born out of the fact that we are reflecting into the world the image of God. What did Jesus, what did God tell Adam and Eve to do when he put them in the garden? <coughs> Name the animals, absolutely. What else? Take care of the garden. It was their job to cultivate the garden that God had planted. The Bible says God planted a garden in Eden. And then he, Adam and Eve was their job to cultivate the garden, possibly grow the garden. Maybe what God wanted to do was to have Eden cover the whole earth at some point, And it will. It truly will. That God was saying, okay, I'm done creating by myself. Now we're going to create together. And he gave them jobs to do, which both employed their curiosity, naming the animals, and their creativity, cultivating the garden, and naming the animals too involves creativity. Two things that we as humans absolutely have to have working or we are bored stiff. Are you? With, do you understand? Are you with me on that? If you aren't living, having your curiosity satisfied continually, you're bored. Is that true? Yes. It's true. That's why humans are constantly learning. Did you think that was a mistake? No, God did that on purpose. But there's another, there's another piece to that as well, and that is we take what we learn and we regurgitate it as a creative force. Into the world, we make inventions, we create things, we, we bring new levels of flourishing and, and etc., both for ourselves and for the animals and plants that we encounter. Now, we do a pretty crappy job of it right now, but that's because our image of God has been so clouded. Well, it's creativity and stuff, like, is that kind of the reason of, like, why when you said, like, last time, like, how it's so hard for us to, like... When I say we need to stay still and clear our minds, I don't mean we need to empty our heads. What I mean is we need to realign the mirror with the image. That's what clear your mind means in a Christian context. The whole idea of meditation in the Eastern practice is empty your mind completely, have no thoughts whatsoever, create like this empty space and live there. Okay. But that's not the Jewish tradition of meditation. The Jewish tradition of meditation is to, is to fill the mind with the word of God and allow yourself to navigate the waters of the, of the word of God until you have a good, you know, some good pictures out of the word of God, and you can begin to understand. It's the way that we're supposed to engage in this, in this, because the person, the thing we are the most curious about, and the thing which we should be on the most intentional journey with, is our understanding of who God is. And it takes an eternity to know an eternal God. We will be on this journey into who God is forever. But our journey into creation is a journey into who God is. 
scientific discovery, etc., etc., are all things because everything that exists was born out of who God is. Everything that exists also shows us who God is. So curiosity is an absolutely important fact piece of this of this puzzle. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do is when you're meditating is to bring a question before the Lord and chew on that question for a long time. Don't take quick answers because they never work. Pat answers are worthless. Don't do that. Don't just, well, it just means this. No, 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 no. Go deeper than the surface. I would challenge you to spend 30 minutes thinking about infinity. God, what does it mean that you're infinite? And then just let your imagination and your curiosity run, directed by the Holy Spirit. You're going to find things that you've never connected with infinity. You're going to find things that you never thought about. Scripture is going to come and it's going to help you to see and build this whole idea of infinity. And you're going to have this... It's a beautiful, wonderful, awesome thing. And I can't tell you how many times I have sat down. I usually do the meditative process of building a space in my head where I'm going to meet with Jesus and where we're going to talk about these things. And I did that with you, I think, a few weeks ago, right? Where we built a meeting place. And I do that often, where I will build a meeting place in which I'm going to encounter Jesus. I'm going to build in my brain an imaginary place, and I'm going to down to detail what do the couches look like? Is there, you know, what else is there? Or if it's in the middle of a field or something, what you know kinds of flowers are in the field or whatever. I build that place really well with my imagination, and then I invite Jesus to come and to be with me there. And almost every time I've done that, I've had a dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says things to me that are surprising, that are unpredictable, that make me go, oh, I've never thought about it that way. But when I take a question to him there in that place, and he begins to speak to me, it's one of the most refreshing, beautiful, encouraging things that I've ever done, is to meet him there in the meeting place. And the thing is, the truth that says, this has become my regular practice, Jesus will start... Uh, suggesting meeting places. Hey, I know we met in that room that you built for me, but what if we meet on the beach? There was, uh, I think, did I tell you guys about this? The, the meeting place that, one of the places that Jesus has met me quite a few times recently is uh, a memory, actually, of a place. Uh, it is, it's the beach uh, on Anna Maria Island, and I was there. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Going back there again this summer. Praise Jesus. And um, and we, me and my two oldest sons were out there. It was after dark and we're on the beach. And off along the horizon was this huge thunderstorm out on the ocean. And so there was this dance of lightning in the clouds, which we couldn't hear, but we could only see. And so all I can hear is the lapping of the waves. But I'm watching this crazy light show. It was stunning. And we just sat there for like, I don't know, maybe an hour just watching. And if we did talk to each other, it was super quiet because we were just kind of in awe of what was going on. And a few weeks ago, the Lord, 
I was like, okay, Lord, I need to talk to you about some things. And the Lord said, okay, meet me on that beach with the lightning storm. And so that's where I went. And the Lord, and the Lord said, okay. And the thing is, I had some people I was praying for. And he said, now bring them to the beach too. And I was like, okay, so I brought them to the beach in my head, you know. Okay, here they are. They're all sitting on the beach with me. And one by one, the Lord began to come to each of them, and he would take them by the hands and lead them out and walk with them on the ocean. And the Lord was like, I'm taking care of them. And I'm going to do miracles in them. And you don't need to worry about them. Give them to me. Then finally... Actually, he skipped a few people and came to me and said, come with me. And we ran out onto the ocean, okay, all the way out to where those storm clouds were. And there was lightning flashing all around us. And I'm walking on the water and I'm kind of freaking out about it. And Jesus, but Jesus kept saying, actually, what he said was, now let's dance. And he kept saying, he kept saying, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. Flash of lightning. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. Huge wave. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. And he said to me, it doesn't matter what it looks like all around you. You keep your eyes on me and you're going to be okay. It shook me to my core and I still think about it. Whenever I hear of something that's happening, I'm just like, I'm keeping my eyes on you. <laughs> Let's dance among the wind and the waves, Jesus. It was, yeah. So I want to encourage you <laughs> to create those moments with the Lord. That's what meditation looks like. But it involves your imagination. God gave you that imagination, and he gave it to you to use to explore the universe with him, and it's going to be awesome. So now we're going to rewind from the end of history, and we're going to go back to the middle where Jesus stands. And Jesus is there. He's in a culture that understands the history of, the, of its own people that understands that they have failed at the purpose to which they've been called, and but has a wrong understanding of what the kingdom of God that they were created to establish in the earth, that's what Abram was set aside to establish, a kingdom where God is the king over the earth again. Because another way to look at the whole idea of being an image bearer is that we are the ones, the delegated authority from God into the earth, carrying out his purposes in the planet, that we're his ambassadors to the planet, that God has said, I'm putting you in charge of the earth. You have my authority, now rule it as I would. Does that make sense? Okay. I like the image bearer thing better because it's a more full picture than the other one, because if we just think it of, of it in the, in the, I don't think we have a clear enough picture of the cross to be good rulers yet. Until we understand that Jesus dying on the cross is the way we rule the earth. We rule the earth in a cruciform posture. We rule the earth as its servants, not as its kings. We rule the earth as its sacrificial victims, not as its uh, dominator. Are you with me? Until we really get that in our DNA, where our failure is more powerful than our success, 
it so fights against American culture. I love it, but it's so real. Jesus won by losing. You think about that for a minute. He defeated his enemies by losing to them. Anyway. So Jesus is stepping into a culture, the Jewish people, who have this echo in their mind of the kingdom that God has called them to establish in the earth, of the fact that God has raised up the Jewish people through Abraham in order to to reestablish the rule of the image bearer on the planet, and that's why the Israeli the Israel uh, that's why Israel exists, and they know that, but they also know that they've thoroughly failed at this image. And now Jesus is coming and he's saying to them, now it's time for the kingdom of God to come. And they're going, yes, finally. But Jesus says, in order for it to come, I have to, re- I have to correct your understanding of what the kingdom of God means. I have to give you a better way of looking at the promises and the commandments that you were given in the past so that you understand what they were really about and not that they are about what you currently think they're about. Because what they currently thought they were about was about domination, was about we're going to be the big bosses and we're going to be crushing everybody else under our heel. That's how they felt about the kingdom of God. They felt like, you know, Rome right now is just flattening everybody and it can't be stopped. Okay, that's going to be the that's going to be Israel soon. That's what they thought. And Jesus is going, no, no. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Are you with me? All right, let's stand up. Shake yourselves. I would encourage you to ditch the blankets. I don't think it's that cold up here. It's not. I'm not cold at all, but then I'm teaching. I'm just saying the blankets encourage sleepiness. I'm going to use this. This isn't the time for spiritual rest. I'm going to run downstairs with the restroom in like 20 you can rest with Jesus on your own time. You're not resting with me. All right, come on, stretch. Get your blood flowing a little bit. Come on, move around. I have decided I'm not going to be nice to the sleepers anymore. I'm going to throw things at you. I am. I travel an hour to be here to teach this class to you. And I love doing it, but I'm 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 done with uh, the sleepers. So I love you, but it's not going to be allowed to continue. So all right, get them faster, hey, buddy. All right. Okay. So Jesus is reinterpreting their image of the kingdom of God. He's trying to help them to see what the kingdom of God actually is supposed to look like. Because this is the purpose of Israel, and it's the purpose of humanity on the earth, and he's excited about that. So we started last week with, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, you can't begin with, with arrogance. You can't begin by thinking you know everything. you got to begin by emptying yourself. you got to begin by saying, I know nothing. Jesus, please teach me. Empty your cup so Jesus can fill it. That's where we're beginning. Number two on the list. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are those that mourn. Now, can I say this to you? We hate this statement. We hate this statement. Because the United States of America, Western culture, despises weakness. We do. We despise weakness. We're like, I am, I am, a, I am a strong and independent person. And I can, I can take care of myself. And that's, like, that's, that's one of the most important things that we want to be able to say about ourselves. Isn't it? Think about it. Isn't, like, isn't it important to you that like, I don't need any help. I'm fine. Isn't that important? How many times have you seen people like both legs are broken and they're like, I got it. I got it. Right? <laughs> and you're like, no, you don't. Okay, it's like those people... That the hurricane is coming, you know. It's a Category Five hurricane, but I'm I'm still living in my house. I lived through the last hurricane. I'll be fine through the next one. But they're the ones that are waving bed sheets on top of the house when the helicopter comes. It's like you stupid people, wake up! Hurricane is stronger than you. Okay. We don't like mourning. We don't like it. And this, is, this idea of mourning is connected to poverty of spirit. Because in order to fully receive from Jesus, we have to be emptied of our pride. And what is mourning? What's mourning? Wrong. At least I answered. <laughs> I appreciate your I, wrong answer. I, I came up here not really out of context. I was just going for it. <laughs> but that's not what mourning is. That being emptied of pride to like allow others Mourning is an expression of feeling sorry for yourself. Mourning is an expression of loss. It's not enough to feel it. That's one thing. But it, to, be more, to, to mourn is to express it. And do you see how Jesus isn't so much blessing the feeling as he's blessing the expression of the feeling? Okay? He's, here's the idea. We are mourning because of our brokenness and failure. When we become awakened to our spiritual poverty, we have two choices. We can either, we can either do what redneck culture always does, which is this. That's who I am. You're just going to have to accept it. I'm just saying. Come on now. That's redneck culture in America. You got to admit it. Okay. That's right. I live in a trailer that's falling around, down around. Because that's who I am. And you're just going to have to accept it. I don't apologize that I weigh 600 pounds. This is just who I am. Hey, I am among the chubbies. So I am allowed to speak. <laughs> Okay. Think about it. Have you ever watched that show, My 600 Pound Life, or whatever it is? Okay. What do they always say? Do any of them, do even one of them, admit that they have done this to themselves? No. No, they don't. It takes hours of therapy to get them to say, yes, I ate those 9,000 calories a day for the last 30 years. It, it's not funny at all, but it's true. Okay, and I honestly think the reason that show exists is so that chubby people like me can watch it and be like, hey, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I think if the day came when I passed a certain weight level, I would be like, well, I should probably do something. Bull crap. That's what got them to 600 pounds, okay? 
Mourning is an expression of the realization that I'm not okay. Spiritual poverty is the realization that I'm not okay. Mourning is the expression of that realization. Spiritual poverty is living in that place. It's making that realization, I'm not okay. And mourning is an expression of it. Mourning is the is the cry, is the cry for help that is intentional and not, you know, I don't know, the the way people cry for help when they're not actually crying for help. Well, you know, when somebody does something stupid and someone else is like, well, it was a cry for help. It may have been, but it wasn't. That's not the kind of mourning Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about the passive-aggressive cry for help, which is actually not a cry for help, because when you try and give them help, they're like, no, thank you. Jesus is talking about the actual realization of the fact that I'm not okay, and then expressing it outside of yourself to someone else. I'm not okay. Starting with God, but continuing to other human beings. Every time I am involved with a funeral, there's two broad categories of people. There's lots of different you know, manifestations of these categories, but here are the two categories. There's the, I'm going to be strong for everyone else, and then there's the, I'm devastated. Okay? I'm going to be strong for everyone else, and then the I'm devastated. Okay? Can I say to you that the I'm devastated people might, yep, their makeup's going to be messed up. Yep, they're going to have runny noses. Yep, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be kind of making a fool of themselves at the funeral and at the other thing. But guess what? They're going to feel better a lot faster than the I'm going to be strong for everyone else people is the people that are in touch with their own emotions enough to realize I'm not okay that actually begin to process their grief more quickly now I never ever I would never look at someone who's saying I'm going to be strong for everyone else and be like you need to get to the business of mourning no that doesn't work don't ever do that. If you see someone that's like, I'm trying to be strong for my family, just let them live there. But you need to know that in three months or so, they're going to collapse in on themselves. They're finally going to realize that this person is gone and they're going to have to mourn. That's coming. Although I have met people that have held on to that for years. And they've become cold, distant, non-people for a long time. And then all of a sudden their whole world collapses and then they finally mourn the passing of their mother or father or husband or whatever. And it's only then that they're able to move on because it requires, the human soul requires mourning to move through grief. When we see that we are spiritually impoverished, we have to begin to mourn. That mourning looks a lot of ways. Mourning looks like repentance. God, I don't want to be this way anymore. 
help me turn around. Let show me, <laughs> change my mind about these things. It's a request for help. It leads to repentance and it leads to dependence on God. Which is exactly what we need. It's not enough to realize you're broken. You also have to begin the process of being fixed. We have to move off of the crushing realization, I'm not okay, and step into the, but there is hope for me. One of the key ways to know if a voice you are hearing in your head is the Lord or the enemy is that one word, hope. If what you are hearing in your heart, in your head, is giving you no hope for the future of this reality that it's talking to you about, you will never, ever be done with that particular sin. You're always going to be stuck in it because that's who you are. That's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Can I say that to you? Please understand, that is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. The voice of the Holy Spirit says, you are there, but you don't have to stay. Let me lead you out. And that's the kind of morning we're looking for. A morning that turns us to dependence on God. It's a morning which leads us back to poverty of spirit. Deep down understanding that we without Christ can do nothing. John 15.5 is one of my favorite verses. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Imagine that you were to go to Florida okay, and walk through the orange groves and you walk up to one of the orange trees and you chop off a limb of the orange tree and take it home. Would you expect that limb to have oranges on it? No, it's not going to work. Is that limb going to... Flower and then produce oranges. No, because you have removed it from its source of life and it can't do anything. It can't produce fruit at all. And yet, we separate ourselves from the flow of life that comes from Jesus, and yet, and we expect that we can be able to become like Him. We must widen and deepen our connection to the vine. And unclog our connection to the vine. Whatever other ways you want to describe it. We need the life of Jesus flowing from Jesus into us. And then guess what? Oh, I'm becoming like Jesus. Who knew? Isn't this amazing? Look, there's fruit. We don't do that by saying, oh, I can handle this myself. I just got to work harder. No, you idiot. If you're going to work harder at anything, work harder at being connected to Jesus. I learned this the other day. I, that, I don't know, it was several years ago, but I didn't know it. I didn't know that this was true. But you know that it's deciduous, right? The trees that lose their leaves in the, in the mm, fall and the yeah. winter, right? I'm going to say yes. Those, <laughs> those kind of trees... <laughs> Those kind of trees are not asleep in the wintertime. I always thought that they were. I always thought that like, oh, they're just hibernating like the animals do. That's not the case. Do you know what's happening during the winter? All the life that is so, that is so focused on leaf and fruit bearing 
in the spring and in the summer. Now moves downward in the tree and is growing the root system. During the wintertime, the tree invests its resources in becoming more deeply rooted in the soil. Come on, that's good, isn't it? Isn't that good? Okay. So when... <laughs> isn't that beautiful? Okay. When things get tough for us, where should our investment be? We should be saying, I'm going to root myself even deeper in you, Jesus, more than I ever have before. This hurts. This is difficult. I'm completely incapable of bearing fruit right now, so I'm not going to even try. I'm just going to dig deeper into the soil. And then the next year, they're so much more connected with the source of their of their strength in there that when things become better in the outer world, they can create more fruit, more leaves than they were ever able to in the past. Is that beautiful or what? How many, let me encourage you, if you are in a winter season and you feel like I'm bearing no fruit at all, invest in your connection to Jesus. It's good stuff, man. That's what mourning looks like. Mourning looks like I'm hurting, I'm in pain, I'm in difficulty, so I'm going to dig my roots deeper into who Jesus is. That's mourning. And that's the mourning that results in comfort. They're mourning because we're broken and we've failed. We're mourning because we have pain and loss. We're so convinced that it's important that we are impregnable and impervious. Sorry, that's my Assembly of God alliteration again. Impregnable and impervious. We refuse to mourn. We put on a smile. We distract ourselves. We ask people, hey, don't tell anybody about this, okay? Mm. How often have you done that? Something truly terrible is happening in your life, and shame says to you, well, I'm going to share it with one person, but I'm going to swear them to secrecy. <laughs> Which never works anyway, because everybody talks. <laughs> Do you know how, do you know the church should be the place where we're allowed to be messed up? The church should be the place where we're allowed to say, I have a sin problem. And the whole rest of the church is like, duh. <laughs> Everyone else in the room is like, me too. Come on. The church should be the place where we are able to say to one another, I don't have this all figured out. I still have this issue where we can be honestly transparent without shame because we're, we know the truth that we're in good company. There is nobody in this room that's doing better than we are. Not really. But is that the church is the opposite of that, isn't it? The church is the place where you're not allowed to be broken. The church is the place where you're not allowed to, to talk about your issues. The church is the place where you have to paste on that, that lovely Sunday morning smile. And when people say, how you doing? You're like, I'm great. Blessed and highly favored. <laughs> Makes me want to puke. The church should be a hospital. The only reason you go there is because you're sick. And it's never a shame to be sick in the hospital. 
Do you know how many times when somebody's really sick that they apologize for the fact that they're sick? Even in the hospital. Somebody's, you know, like vomits on something, you know, and oh, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Or you're coughing. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like, yeah, because you chose this behavior. <laughs> you were like, you know what? I feel like vomiting right now. Stop apologizing. You didn't want this to happen. I should be apologizing to you. I'm so sorry. Maybe my germs, yeah, I don't know, but I'm sorry that you feel that way. Pain, okay, I'm going to say a radically powerful sentence right now. Are you ready for this? A sentence that is going to, if you honestly believe this sentence, it will change you and the world around you. Are you ready? Pain is a friend. <laughs> Mr. Ron Duvall. <laughs> <laughs> what, that's such a joke. That's such a joke. Oh, yes. Brother Ron Duvall. Brother Ron Duvall. <laughs> he is, though. He's, he's, uh, he loves Jesus very much. Oh. <laughs> His son is actually a pastor in, uh, in the, the area right now. Do you know that? I did not know that. I love, I love me some Ron Duvall. Three days grace. That man is a legend. Pain is weakest in the body. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Listen, pain is a friend. What is pain for? I want you to think for a minute. What is pain for? Why do you feel pain? Okay, there is a disease which takes away your ability to feel pain. There is a disease which does that. Do you know what it's called? Leprosy. Yeah. Leprosy, the only thing leprosy does, it's viral. And it causes you, it kills the nerve endings in the ends, in, in your exterior, and then further in until eventually it shuts down your ability to breathe and that kind of thing. But it eats away at your nervous system and it starts by your the nerves that allow you to feel things. Okay? It and whenever I thought about the way that I thought about leprosy when I was a kid was that it would make your fingers and toes and things fall off, right? Yeah. Okay? Do you know why your fingers and toes and things fall off? Because you have pain for a reason. Pain alerts you to the fact that there is damage in your body. And it, it enables you to not to continue to do the thing which is hurting you. Okay? That's why you limp when you have a hurt ankle. That's why, you know, you your whole body reacts when there's pain in a certain part of your body. If you didn't do that, then whatever you did to injure that part of your body, you're going to continue to do because you don't realize that you are injuring yourself. And that injury becomes more and more and more pronounced until that part of your body actually dies, becomes necrotic, okay? And the doctor has to take it off because if it doesn't, the dead 
piece of flesh is going to poison the rest of your body. And that's what happens with people who are leprous. When they walk down the street, you stub your toe, you will limp and not allow your toe to be touching the ground anymore because you feel pain. But if you don't realize that you have injured your toe, you'll continue to walk on it. That injury will continue to get worse until the toe becomes completely necrotic and either falls off of its own accord or you remove it because it's poisoning the rest of your foot. That's what happens with leprosy. There's literal Now, the places where leprosy still exists is really just in the third world because it's fairly easy to not catch leprosy. You just have to wash your hands, etc. Okay. But they don't know about hygiene. They didn't know about hygiene back then. They still, a lot of places don't know about hygiene, and so people catch it. Okay, but in those places, literally, they will sleep through rats chewing their toes off. Because they can't feel it. Do you see how that would be bad for your body over time? <laughs> and yet, what do we do? When pain happens, we ignore it, don't we? We try to escape from it. We don't listen to the message the pain is sending us and go to the place where the problem is and try and fix what's broken. No, we don't do that. We run from the pain. We say, Novocaine, Novocaine, Novocaine. Emotional Novocaine. Where's my, where's my television program so I don't have to feel my feelings? Where is my ice cream so I don't have to feel my feelings? Okay, think about it. Where's my social media so I don't have to feel my feelings? We have a whole array. Where are my cigarettes? Where's my sex? Where's my alcohol? Where's my drugs so I don't have to feel my feelings? We have a whole array of ways to numb ourselves from the pain. Instead of going to where the problem is and confronting it head on and saying this needs to be fixed, no, we run away from it and we continue to just numb it, numb it, numb it until that part of us dies and begins to poison the rest of who we are. Or until this thing that we're doing, which we need to do more in greater and greater quantities just to continue to numb the ever-growing pain, eventually takes us over and kills us. This is the problem of Western society. This is the problem that's all around you, and this is your problem and mine. We don't recognize pain for what it is. It is a friend. It is a friend that says to us, something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. If we would wake up, and start asking questions of our pain and enter into the mourning process which will walk us through healing, then not only will what has been broken to cause that pain be healed, but we will be stronger than we ever were before. But it takes vulnerability. It takes the ability to mourn. It takes the ability to say, I'm not okay. To say it first to God and then to people around you, it takes that. And that's not easy to do. 
I would absolutely send you to he- listen to Brene Brown and her TED Talks on vulnerability and shame. She's a researcher who's doing research in the area of shame and vulnerability, where she found out that the happiest people in the world are people that are willing to be vulnerable to their own pain. Check her out. She's amazing. I'm about to read her new book, which is called Braving the Wilderness, which is all about what it means to actually belong. And I can't wait. It's going to crush me in beautiful ways. What I find amazing about her research is that her research is just scientific research about how people operate, and yet it keeps it keeps preaching the Sermon on the Mount to me over and over and over again. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> Thing is, she knows she is a Christian and she knows that this is harmonizing with everything Jesus ever taught. And she's, but she doesn't say that. She just presents her, her research and without even knowing it, she's leading people into the way of Jesus. I mean, she knows that she is. They don't know that she is. She's awesome. She's an Episcopal, so, I mean, she might be saved. Anyway, that was a joke, friends. That was a joke. Relax. Take a deep breath. Pain is a friend. It's a treasure. We need to recognize it as that. And we need to ask questions of our pain. Why does this hurt? Why does this hurt? What's broken? And you know what you're going to find out, unfortunately, when it comes to emotional pain? Most of the time, what you're going to find out is that it wasn't what the other person did to you that really hurts. It's that you have something broken inside of you that just rhymes with what they did to you, and therefore it hurts a lot more than it really should. Have you ever had somebody make fun of you for exactly the thing you're most insecure about? And doesn't that hurt a thousand times more because you actually agree with what they say, right? And that really hurts. And you're like, but what do we do? What do we always do? You horrible person! When the truth is, guess what? You're really the problem. And if you would just take a minute and realize that at the bottom of that insecurity, there's probably something the Lord wants you to deal with. You're probably putting your worth in someplace that doesn't belong. You haven't allowed Jesus to really heal you in that place. And that even though they meant their comment for evil, the Lord means it for good because it's bringing you back to your problem. <laughs> Imagine the day when you'll be able to say to someone who said something really horrible about you, thank you. I always, I always listen to those things when I feel really insecure about something. But I don't listen to it as a how dare you thing anymore. I listen to a uh-oh. I'm really insecure about that, so what's going on? And the Holy Spirit and I begin a journey 
to figure out where I'm misaligned. What lie have I believed? What's broken? I can't tell you the number of insecurities the Lord has walked me out of because of that kind of a process where not because I'm awesome, but because the Lord is good, I've had the courage to say my pain has a purpose and I need to find it. And then my insecurity becomes a trophy of God's grace. And I can preach and teach about it. You with me? But if we refuse to mourn, it's never going to happen. You're never going to get any better. As with all of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn because there's a purpose. They shall be comforted. Thank you, Jesus. He's saying, mourning without any intention of leaving your current state is not real mourning. Mourning is the beginning of a process of leave of change. Mourning is the beginning of a process of healing. Complaining is the opposite of mourning. Grumbling is the opposite of growth. Because grumbling is always grumbling and complaining. When have you ever actually grumbled and complained because you did something wrong? What is grumbling and complaining? It's a finger point, isn't it? Isn't grumbling and complaining saying, you suck, this sucks, everything else sucks, but I'm fine? <laughs> the blame thrower, yes. <laughs> Your negativity is terrible for this team. Anyway, anybody with me on that? Okay, yeah. The blame thrower, I really love that. It's one of my favorite things from that movie. But I want, to, I, also, I want to bring something to your attention. So who is the enemy of our souls? Satan. What's his name? Satan. Okay, do you know what Satan means? No. Accuser. That's what Satan means. That's what Satan means. And there's a whole lot of theologians that, that don't even refer to Satan as a person, but just as a process, just as a spiritual force in the world which causes me to locate the source of my problem outside of myself and somewhere else. It causes me to kill my brother when he's telling me how to follow God better and not be because my problem with God is because of you. That's what happened with Cain and Abel, isn't it? God didn't accept Cain's offering because it wasn't offered with faith according to the book of Hebrews. But God accepted Abel's offering because it was offered with faith. Cain turns, looks at Abel, and he is mad at Abel. Why? Because God accepted your offering and not mine. Did he once ask the question, what did I do wrong? No. He murders his brother. Because it must be your fault. 
and not mine. That's the work of the accuser, and that's what always happens, and that's the basis of our entire society. Because that's what we do when we have a problem as a society. We find a scapegoat, and we crucify them, and that's supposed to fix everything. Right? Isn't that what we did? Isn't that what we do? I could be really, really political right now, and I'm not going to. But isn't that what we do? <laughs> it's those immigrants coming over the... the, the uh, Mexican border. It's those immigrants. They're our problem. They're the reason we have a problem. We need to build a wall, right? That's what's going to fix this country is if we just get these people out of our country. What are we doing? What are we doing? We are scapegoating again. We're killing Abel all over again. That's what we're doing. And that's what we've been doing since the beginning of creation. And it's what we continue to do because that's what the Satan does. He pronounces that I am not the problem, but he is the problem. And we become accuser. But is that what Jesus did? Is that what Jesus has ever done? And I would say this to you. There's a French theologian, which I'm beginning to get read in on. His name is René Girard. He has some very, very interesting ideas. I don't know whether I agree with most of them, but one of the things he's said... I don't know how he said it because he probably said it in French, but the guy that was saying what he said said this, when you have a culture that is built on sacrificing the other in order to fix my problem that I caused, in other words, a sacrificial culture, you only, if you want to enter that culture from the outside, you will either come in as the persecuting majority or as the sacrificial victim. And Jesus decided to do the latter. It's a pretty big idea. And I'm sure we'll get to it another time. But mourning that is not seeking comfort is just accusation all over again. Mourning that is not seeking to be that is not seeking change is the opposite of the mourning that's blessed. It's the accusatory culture, it's satanic culture that says I'm not the problem you are and I am voicing my my pain in order to get you to stop being the problem. In other, but that is not the mourning Jesus is pointing us towards. Jesus is pointing pointing us towards mourning that's born of spiritual poverty, which says, "I am the issue. I take responsibility, and I'm going to get help." It doesn't agree with the accuser to point the finger at everyone else. It agrees with Jesus that says there is hope for me to change. Does that make sense? And when your walk with Jesus is being ruined by someone else, you've become Satan. I want you to think about that for a minute. Yeah. So, you know the whole like blame others thing. What about those who blame themselves? Like put everything on other people. The question is, are you seeking change or are you just voicing pain? There's a difference. 
That's the difference. Because, yeah, you can be satanic about yourself. Well, I'm just broken and I'm never going to be fixed and nothing is ever going to happen. That's the same spirit. Satan is the spirit of accusation, fear, and separation. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of reconciliation and growth and reconnection. We have a choice. Which, which spirit are we going to be in cooperation with? Are we going to be in cooperation with the spirit that connects us to others so that their strength can become ours in a moment and we can begin to move beyond our difficulty and our problem? Or are we going to become a part, are we going to agree with the spirit that says, I don't need you, I don't want you, you are my problem and I don't have a problem. That pushes other people away. C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce is a book about heaven and hell. He has some very interesting theology on the afterlife. But the picture that I love, the picture that really, really stings in that book is that the people in hell are running from one another. And the longer you're there, the more alone you become. The guy asks, he's like walking around in hell and he asks, can I go visit like Genghis Khan or one of these ancient guys that, you know, he said, yes, but it would take you a million years to get there because he's run so far from everyone else. But the longer you're in hell, the more alone you become precisely because you are in hell because you refuse the help of the Savior or of anyone else for that matter. You said that you were correct and everyone else was wrong. Even those that agree with you will eventually become wrong. And you become more and more isolated forever. And that that's the real torture of hell. That not only are you locked in your destructive pattern that you were in your entire life, but you're locked in it alone. Isn't that even scarier, maybe, than fire? Yeah. I know it's a stupid statement. But it's it's true, though. <laughs> there are those who refuse to be comforted. They refuse to receive hope and help. They refuse good advice because it's never going to get better. It's hopeless. And I'm helpless. Neither one of those things are true. I also want another way to recognize the voice of the enemy. First of all, it has no hope in it at all. Second, if you are convinced that you are the only person that has ever felt the way that you feel right now, <laughs> you are listening to the enemy. Because it's not true. You're not that special. <laughs> I love you, but it's true. Your brand of brokenness is not that different than the brand of brokenness that everybody else sitting around you has. 
Think about it, though, Preston. Isn't it an incredibly prideful thing to yeah. think that no one has ever suffered the way that I do? <laughs> it's an unbelievably prideful statement to make. I am the one who has suffered worse than anyone else. Oh, shut up. That brings a whole new when you talk to somebody and they're like, you know, they're going through something and like, I've gone through something similar. may not the same But you don't know. Yeah. So I'm really curious now. That just changes how people talk to each other, I guess. That's the voice of the enemy. They have listened to and thoroughly believed the voice of the enemy. When we weep with the one who can do all things, we know that our weeping will come to an end because he can do all things. I'm not telling you not to weep. For goodness sake, weep. I'm not telling you not to mourn. For goodness sake, mourn. But mourn in the company of the one who can comfort you. And mourn so that you can be comforted because you will. That's the promise of the kingdom of God. That here, mourning is comforted. Now, it's not comforted by numbing the pain. There's a song, an old song, he'll take the pain away, I know it. I'm like, no, I don't want to take the pain away. I want to walk through the process of healing that will make me stronger. I don't want another Novocaine to my soul. I want to actually become better. Amen? <laughs> okay, I said we were going to get through three, but we've only got through one. That's pretty much all I have to say about blessed are those that mourn. I want to, I wanna, but we only have 15 minutes left. So I want to put it out there. I want to hear from you. Process with me. What are you thinking? thing about the gospel is that it doesn't ignore your pain or cover up your pain or like try and shove your pain aside. No, it makes your pain worth it. When the symbol of authority that Jesus bears are the scars that he has, heaven is going to be full of scarred people. That's the glory of the gospel. Not that you were wounded, but that you've been healed. One of the coolest things I've been doing is get, uh, whenever I'd like fall and hurt my knee or something like that, I'm like, my mom was like, I go to Alaska like almost every single year to help my elbow. And I always come back with a new scar because I've not fallen down a hill. 
fraction of your name would be your son's name. And um, I come back with scars, and moms are like, oh, what happened? I'm like, oh, I just got another student name. And that's yeah. what we called me at that time. Because it was a memory of something that, yeah, hurt. But hurt like heck. <laughs> I don't want to forget. Soothing me. I think that's really cool. Because that brings like a whole new spiritual way to look at scars. Yeah. It's the power of scars. The glory of a scar. I've got one right there where a golf club went into my mouth the wrong way. No problem. Anyway, you're Next question. Is there a left way? <laughs> I mean, it could have gone in like, oh, I would, you know, but it went in this way. In, in a non-existent hole. There you go. <laughs> there were literal, I had stitches both inside and outside. I guess it was oh, not the convenient way, is what you're saying. <laughs> Somebody else. Process. Yeah. Go ahead. I just kind of looked at what Skye like, was saying, and like it like makes me almost like think about like a little kid, like you know how like little kids get, go through like growth and they get like growing pains. Like I look at it as almost like when she said pain is a friend. It's like very true because it's like you think that like a little kid is growing and yeah they have growing pains, but you're still growing. Like you're you're maturing. You're getting better and like. Spiritually, you look at those times of like, oh yes, it hurts, but think of what it's bringing me through, and think of like where it's getting me. So I look at it as almost like growing pains are very real, and it's even real in the spiritual world too. Absolutely. Okay, so like I know uh, I like how you're talking about the whole um, like going through the pain and stuff, because like yeah, I, I I'm using that totally know what it's like. Um, but like I, I wrote down some things and like I'll skim through it. Um. But like when you're talking about the the Jesus guys dying on the cross, it was him winning and what everyone thought he was like losing. And then I kept on thinking like in our weakness he uh we were made strong and then in our surrender to God and to ourselves we can truly know how much we need him. And then when we don't allow ourselves to be our own God, uh, it, it shows us who the true God is. And then I wrote, um, I used to think Jesus that, that's another thing I was like coming to because I thought he was too perfect. I was like God knew I was going to mess up. Why do I have to be like you? I can't be perfect. And it was never to be perfect. And, like, I was thinking, um, so I put, like, I used to think uh, Jesus was too perfect to be like, and we um, need Jesus because he was the only one that could ever carry out his own will. Duh. LOL. That's it. Um, then we need the Holy Spirit to bring back the true revelation of our true selves of God. Um, and then one last thing I was, like, because uh, I... I, I, how I asked you in the beginning, I was like, why did he create Satan? And I was like, uh, like the original plan was never about Satan. It was about God just wanting the people who he loves and who loved him to have free will and choose him. By creating Satan, he knew what he would do, but he also knew what his son would do and the purpose that both would serve. All things are created for God and by God. Everything has its purpose, and he always had a plan for that purpose. Without Satan, in some ways, we wouldn't have the revelation of God because all of his, all of his attacks will bring us closer to God if you choose for that. Then I went to thinking, um, now that we have like uh, the second life, you know, if you want to be patient, all I could think back was the knowledge of good and evil. We now know the knowledge of good and evil with, you know, being able to like, I know all kinds of evil. I lived it, yeah. you know, but now I get the second life to make that final choice, you know, because it's coming. And like, I now, you know, with 
more, you know, learning and um, involving myself around, you know, people who want to be me and stuff. And like, I want to see like you down, you know, like, and I know it's 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 simple stuff, but like to me, it was revelation that I needed because that stuff I would like when I first got saved, I was pondering on it forever, and I was like, God, I don't understand, I can't believe, and like I would do that whole thing if I'm not helping my unbelief, but like the knowledge of good and evil, like. That's I, I was thinking back to that tree, you know, and then like they did that, we now know that knowledge is good and evil. So now, before, you know, we were on this side of the spectrum where we didn't really know that knowledge, you know, because we were sinning, we were stuck in our own sin. And then now we have a choice and we, we can either go both ways, you know, and I, I thought that was really neat. Yeah, it's absolutely right. The way the Bible talks about it is that God took the opportunity of our brokenness to reveal things about him that couldn't have been revealed any other way. That God never wanted us to be broken, but he's going to take that and he's going to turn it into, he's going to Romans 8, 28 it and work all things together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That he was going to meet our, our evil with a revelation of his good and reverse the power of evil by taking it in himself and becoming the redeemer. That's the beauty of Jesus as the sacrificial victim. He's the final sacrificial victim. He's the final Abel. He's the final one. The blood of Abel cried out for Cain's death, but the blood of Jesus cries out for our resurrection. You see, Jesus is the final better able, who through his death unites us and doesn't separate us. He took this process that had begun in Genesis where humankind was all about destroying another to exalt myself. And Jesus said, I will let you destroy me so that I might be exalted. He reversed the script and gave us back what God had given to us in the first place. Whew. The glory of the cross. I could think about it forever. It's the most beautiful, amazing thing in the history of the world. That the one victim who was the most unjustly punished could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now... We live in the world as a reflection of Jesus' sacrifice. There's not a, it's not a secret why the church has flourished the most when it's been persecuted the most. Because we are filling up what's missing of Christ's sufferings. We are the present day example of what Jesus did on the cross. And every time truth and power smack into each other, truth has to die in order to defeat power. That's why Martin Luther King died. That's why so many of our greatest truth bearers in the history of human race have died. And in dying, reflected Jesus' death back to us again. And now we celebrate them. In losing, they won. 
no room in the gospel for the worship of success that we have in this in this culture. Just none. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking like two things are mainly going through my head right now. First of all, like while we're still on the topic, like just thinking about like 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 what Jesus did here, like the fact that he allowed like like literally like us miserable wretches to kill him. Like he allowed that in order to save us. Like I'm thinking through that, like and like I know nothing of humility. Like even if I thought I did, like that that's humility in its highest form, like he let someone that had no right or power to kill him kill him. So what do, what do I know about humility? <laughs> and um also um what am I just like how I process insecurity and like what am I really doing with that? Like as like I'm a process in that like American dream style, which yeah. is like, like we think we think we blend the gospel into it because you know we think that's what that's how it works and it doesn't. And I'm like, am I processing that by like you know infusing Jesus into the American dream, which is you know like pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Yeah. And we use that in Christianity, like. And Jesus is here yeah, to help you. Pray do for that. pray for confidence, and you know get over my insecurity when. <laughs> Maybe confidence isn't the problem with insecurity. Oh, Maybe there's a root issue. Yeah. So I I have to process through that for a little bit. The whole the whole script that our that our country has and that and that has gone on for your generation about self esteem is one of the ugliest things that our culture has ever created. That the answer to your insecurity is that you just change your opinion about yourself. Preach that in church too. Uh, yeah, we do. We're really good at preaching American civil religion. We're fantastic at it. The church, especially the evangelical and and post evangelical churches in the United States, are better preachers of American dogma than America has ever been. <laughs> but um, that's a whole other issue. I want to. Uh, I want to read something to you. I don't know anything about this guy. Um, you okay there, Preston? Um, I follow him on Twitter, but I don't know anything about him. I just know he's he's good with turns of phrase. I'm trying to find this. Uh, and he, he's good on Twitter. So I've never heard him preach. I've never read anything else other than Twitter of his. But you know, um, Oh! He likes Pedro the Lion. That means he's good. He's, he's good. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh. Pedro the Lion. It's a band. And I adore them. It's a... Uh, it's actually a band led by a guy who was walking himself out of his Christian faith and and was, and I mean, still is out of his Christian faith as far as I know, but he was, 
cataloging his journey out of Christian faith via song. And he sang some really, really honest stuff that I really, really love. Uh, that really hurts. Um, but it's beautiful. I want to read this to you. We are so terribly fragile, seriously, so much smaller and more helpless than we project. We're all middle schoolers walking around with our lunch tray, hoping we find a safe place to sit down. We're children. If we grasp this, we'd be so much more tender to everyone. Then maybe there's a purpose of our insecurity and in that it's to realize that everyone around us has the same kind of insecurities that we do. And maybe... Our insecurities could draw us together and not push us away from each other. I just thought that was interesting. Anyway, his name is Jonathan Martin, if you want to look him up on Twitter. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, Father, thank you. We love you. Once again, Jesus, you step into the midst of our stuff and you change the conversation. And you challenge us in areas we didn't even know we had. You reveal blind spots. You uncover sickness. But you don't do it to shame us. You do it to heal us. You do it to restore us. You do it to give us back to ourselves. And to set us free. To be exactly who you created us to be. We love you.